I'm Denise. I'm the Scottish one. And she's a non-fiction editor. And I'm Louise, the English one. And she's a fiction editor. And together, we're the Editing Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Editing Podcast. Here we are with part two of our Q&A for editors. And just to let you know that we might not fit all these answers into two episodes. So keep a lookout. There might just be a third yeah, and Denise's parents-in-law have stopped walking around the room directly above her. So if you listen to yesterday's episode, um, I actually had to stop ask, ask Denise to stop the recording of episode one and ask her if she was dancing while we were speaking. But no, it turns out it was the family in squeaky floorboards. I know, and it went on for ages, and I'm really sorry about that. And, it, and hopefully this time I don't sound like I'm recording from a toilet either. <laughs> Yeah, this podcasting thing isn't without its trials and tribulations. I think we thought it was going to take us about an hour to do the whole thing, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was about eight o'clock and then yeah. all of a sudden it's midnight. Yeah, yeah so. yeah. so we better crack on with the questions this time. I think so, we'll yeah. Do better. Yes. Uh-huh. So let's start with Nancy Letitia from the US. Uh, Nancy says she's had zero luck getting projects or clients from professional groups and associations, including the ones that are related to editing. Um, she says 99% of my work is from networking in Facebook groups for book coaching and entrepreneurs, but I've only had moderate success so far. Nancy Letitia would like to know how she maximises her marketing efforts, organically increases lead generation and converts leads at low or no cost, particularly with indie authors. Getting work from publishers and packagers is not really an option in her case because she says of the unfair California law passed last year about freelancers and contractors. Yeah, so Nancy Letitia is referring to, I think, the Assembly Bill 5 or AB5 as it's known, which took effect in January 2020. And without going into too much detail, because I don't know a huge amount about it, um, it changed the way indie editors and other freelancers are categorised and potentially reclassifies them as employee, as employees. Um, mm. And... I mean, we've got something similar in the UK, haven't we? Um, yeah. Um, um, in terms of how how much work you can do for one particular client without it looking more like you're an employee, and it's intended to be a protection for the freelancer, um, mm. so that you don't end up not getting all the benefits of an employee, but being treated like one. Um, however, um, the research we've done, um, it it looks like um, this this law, this bill, rather only comes into play if there are more than 35 annual submissions per client. So if you or anybody else listening to this um, is worried about this because you're a resident in California and you're not planning on doing 35 books a year for one single publisher, then in theory, this wouldn't affect um, your ability as a freelancer to work with publishers and packages. And given that, um, you know, they're such a powerful... um, client Mm -hmm. uh, you shouldn't rule them out yeah yeah I think it's worth bearing that in mind definitely however um, you did say that you wanted to work more with indie authors anyway so organic lead generation is all about useful valuable solutions to potential clients problems it's about providing answers that they go looking for in google which means you're looking at content marketing strategy it costs nothing to create except your time and commitment. And that really is the key to it. So things like blogging, podcasting, or vlogging about your client problems, that's how you become findable in the search engines. 
and that evergreen content is something that can be shared via social media. You can also start building an email newsletter that you can invite people to join under your blog or on your YouTube channel or whatever. And it is a slow burn, though. There's no mm. magic bullet. And so while you're waiting for it to take effect and doing all that hard work, do consider publishers and packages if you can. Um, Facebook changed the way its algorithm works a couple of years back. So it's much harder to get organic reach than it was. But videos work very well, especially lives, if you've got yes. the courage to do them. Yes. <laughs> um, um, but it's all uh, about commenting, too. Facebook generally rewards um people who 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 engage on Facebook um, um, and get a lot of comments. So one thing, one other thing that you might consider is trying um, playing around with um, one of the many chat chatbot campaigns, um, comment campaigns. Um, go and have a look on the many chat website and they've got tutorials on it about there. They're a really fun way to get engagement. So basically what you do is you you post something in, and then you ask people to comment with a keyword and then the, the chatbot recognises that keyword and uses Messenger to send the commenter some sort of freebie like a booklet or a checklist, whatever you want. You have to set it up. Um, anyway, it's something that gets their attention, something that they'll um, find useful. So that's a that's something else you can you can think about yeah i think it's quite a nice little thing so you've done that quite a few times haven't yeah, you I have. yeah, yeah I have. Uh-huh. it's is it's different enough i think that people are curious and that they want to engage to see if it actually works yeah. and, and then they spammy. get you know you're not no you're not asking for for there are quite strict rules about how you can use the data you get from it as well so mm-hmm. i mean i i never ask for anything i don't ask for people's email address all i'm asking for them to do is to engage with the bot and then yeah. I give them my my thing. Yeah, which is lovely. Yeah. yeah. So just to make it clear on the marketing strategy, um, are you addressing their problems? We can focus too much on why we're qualified to edit for people sometimes. And to be honest, they don't really care. They want to know what you can solve for them. You'll give their book a professional finish to avoid negative reviews on Amazon for typos or grammar, perhaps. Um, and really they want to know that they're safe in your hands um, and you're solving whatever issue it is that they have. So other suggestions might be to write guest blogs or speak at events, um, be a guest on podcasts, also target your clients, yeah. meet, meet, your, meet your potential clients where they are. Um, these are all low or no cost content marketing strategies. The only cost you, and I'll say it again, is time and consistency. Stuff. Yeah. Um, our next question is from um, Olivia in Australia. She says, I'm setting up a new editorial related business in document accessibility for people with vision impairment. Do you know about Google Ads and how effective that avenue is? Denise. I don't know. No, I don't really know. <laughs> I'm being <laughs> honest here. I don't know a lot about Google Ads. I don't use paid advertising um, at all. I don't think you do either, Louise. Okay. Um, the thing about paid search um, is it helps businesses find new customers via keywords, um, whereas social helps users find businesses based on the things that they're interested in and the way that they behave online. So there's a different approach to using paid search. Um, and to be honest, I think you probably need the help of a specialist who really understands something like this, because I think with any type of paid advertising, you could end up throwing an awful lot of money at it with very little return if you're not sure 
how to target people mm. correctly with it. That applies to Facebook ads as well. Yeah. Um, so that's, and for me, that would certainly be something I would want to be sure that I was, I had my strategy right for something like that. So yeah. um, I, that's certainly something where I would say, you know, for a lot of these things, I think Louise and I would say, you can work a lot of these things out yourself and it's fun to try, but where, where it involves potentially a significant amount of spend, I think you'd want to be sure that it would it was going to work for you. Yeah. Um, but, but bottom line, AdWords help you find new customers, whereas something like social helps new customers find you content marketing. That's, that's, a, good, that's a really good way of thinking about mm -hmm. it. And just you mentioned Facebook there, Denise, and that's just mm -hmm. for other people who might be interested in this. That That's a really good example of that problem that you highlighted about not targeting properly because, you know, Facebook ads, you and I recently had a look at Facebook um, mm -hmm. Facebook's business manager or business ads manager or whatever yes. it's called yeah and um, because we we went to a conference and um, an online convention marketing convention where um, a couple of the speakers talked about this stuff and they're professional marketers who specialize in Facebook ads and even they acknowledged that Facebook's ads oh. management program is really really quite complex when you first look at it yeah and, um, and so it really was one of those things that that you you could see how you could really come unstuck with it and for example if you were thinking about doing facebook advertising um and you haven't got a pixel set up on your website you're mm -hmm. just probably wasting your money it's a waste so, of money yeah, yeah. so mm -hmm. it's, it's really tricky um another thing to consider um, um olivia and lily called you Ali louise there that's my <laughs> name um olivia um the other thing that came up during that conference was that one of the one of two speakers who Denise and I both listened to, and it was either Drew Davis or Andy Crestadina, um, was talking about um, Google Ads and, and and paying for for visibility on Google. And what they said was that um, think about when you do searches on Google for, for for answers to problems you've got. When those search results come up on the top of the page, do you look at the for the first three or five entries whatever it is that, are, that are, are marked as ads or do you scroll straight to, straight to the content underneath I know what I do mm. I ignore the ads I, I even if uh, 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 someone listed on there has got uh, a, a normal sort of organic link in there and they've got an ad way above I still ignore that I go I go into the I go into the the, the the article that they've written rather than the the, the, the paid stuff. I just ignore it. And so yeah. there is a problem that you could end up, even if it's targeted, paying for visibility in a certain area and people still ignoring that too. And most professional marketers are still saying there is, if you do your marketing well, if you do your content marketing well, there's no need to pay, not 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 for, especially not for small businesses like ours. Mm -hmm. um, there's no need to pay for, for, to, for visibility. You can get yeah. it. You can get it in other ways. And also for um, for a very specific um, niche that uh, um, Olivia is talking about, like, you know, document accessibility for people with visual impairments. That is something that I'm sure you could very easily create really rich content around those. Mm -hmm. That's a, a long tail search keyword string there you know and I'm sure you could create a lot of really useful content around that that would push you right up the search because the key to that is using the the phrases that people are looking for and yep. being useful well, around that solve yeah problems. solve their problems what are their questions mm. maybe better off 
looking, searching online and seeing what kind of questions people ask about. Um, Google's really helpful. Like if you start typing things in uh, the search box in Google, you'll get a list of questions that are, are sort of similar uh, related, the kind yeah, of things like people search for. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you can get a sense of kind of what people are interested in. Um, and then you can you can you know, invest in some time in thinking about what kind of content you could create, which would solve those problems. And when yeah. you solve people's problems, you're much more likely to make people feel engaged and like you care about them, and you and that you're 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 connected with them rather than like you've just paid to to be there. So have a think about that. Definitely. So um, the next question was from Rebecca in the UK, and she says, I love what I do, but I can't help but get stuck, struck by imposter syndrome. Lockdown isn't helping. Um, when even though I know I'm experienced and I know what I'm doing, I doubt myself. And she asked, do you ever suffer from this and how do you deal with it? So <laughs> all the time I, I'm yeah. riddled with this stuff. Um, so I think we've both got something to say about this. I'll, yeah. I'll chip in first. Um, mm -hmm. My advice would be to you, Rebecca, just do it anyway. No one will see or know how nervous you are. Um, start with small things that give you confidence um, and um, and just try not to let it, try not to think in terms of like the, the, the bigger picture. Step back and just go, I'm just going to do this one thing and see how scary it is. And then once I've... Listen, I'll tell you, when I first published the very first episode of my episode, very first <laughs> article on my blog, I was absolutely bricking it. I just thought, who the <laughs> hell am I? And when we first launched the podcast, uh, we, yeah. you and I, didn't we? We felt exactly <laughs> the same way. Yes, and absolutely. Just, just, it's a constant um, <laughs> a guest in my life. Um, mm -hmm. But I, what I won't do is allow it to stop me doing anything. I just let it sit at the table. Let it sit at the table, but don't let it sit at the head of the table. And then, because there's no point in me uh, or Denise saying to you, oh, don't doubt yourself, because that's just a, an absurd thing to say. You know, yeah. we're already in a space and we know what that feels like. Mm -hmm. um, so instead, just, just push it gently to the side and acknowledge it and then carry on doing that thing that it's telling you you shouldn't do anyway. Um, you know, it, yeah. it's tough. It's it's it is tough, but um, you you're not alone. Definitely not. And I, I think um, as editors, I think one of the fundamental problems that we have um, is that if we're if, if we're freelance in particular, is that uh, we don't get a lot of feedback on mm. on what whether or not we're doing a good job. So we you know we put our heart and soul into our work and send it back to our client who pays us or has already paid us and we may never hear from them again. We might yeah. not even get a thanks, great job, I'm really happy with it. Mm -hmm. And I think that can really cause us to doubt what what we're doing a lot of the time. I know for me I really struggled with that particularly in the early days thinking oh gosh, how am I ever going to get another client? They obviously didn't like what I was doing. And your your only, your only um, positive reinforcement is if that client comes back to you again yeah. or recommends somebody to you. So that isolation can really feed into that imposter syndrome where you think, oh, I'm just getting away. I'm just getting away with this I'm really faking it I'm yeah. flying with the seat of the pants somebody's going to find out that I'm not a real editor or I'm not a real proofreader and I think what really helped me is um talking to other editors so I would definitely say 
you know, being part of an editorial community, whether that's through a professional organisation like the CIEP or um, Editors Canada or iPad or whatever, or through the many informal groups on um, Facebook or just hooking up with other editors through Twitter. Hearing other editors speak of the same thing is incredibly reassuring yeah, because it really is, especially when it's people that perhaps you hold in a little bit of awe. You know, to hear somebody who you view as experienced and knowledgeable and even an expert share that they have the same doubts as well is, is can really help, can't it? It can yeah. really help, yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, for me, that really helped me to keep the imposter syndrome in perspective you know I, I'm like Louise I wouldn't say that it ever goes away but I think I can keep it under control just by being around lots of other editors I think that really helps and the other thing I would say is it's really easy for us to focus on what we don't know and and take yeah. for granted what we do know we're always looking forward to think I, I don't know that yet I don't know that yeah. yet rather than looking back and thinking gosh look how far I've come I didn't know all this a year ago or six months ago or whatever Um, and so I think a good way of reminding yourself of that is to share your knowledge with other people so whether that's um, volunteering um, to give talks at maybe local schools or local businesses about editing or writing and perhaps mentoring new entrants to the profession and that suddenly makes you realize how far you've actually come in your own journey and giving talks on editing outside of editing circles where all of a sudden you're in the position of being the person that yeah. holds the knowledge, yeah. you know, yeah. and you realise actually all these assumptions you make about things that you just think, well, everybody knows. My goodness, you suddenly realise actually a lot of these things, a lot of people don't know about yeah. them and I can help them and I can share that information. And I think that does an awful lot for your your self-esteem so maybe make a list of those things Rebecca make a list of your wins something that you can look at to remind yourself of those things that Denise is talking about that where you've where the the so you can see your journey you can see how much you remind yourself like I have gained this knowledge I've gained this experience and therefore even if even if the imposter voice is, is is tapping you on the shoulder you can go well yeah okay I still feel like a bit of a faker just because I do yeah but actually I'm not I've got it there in writing look I, I, I I've done this and I've done this and and you can use that to remind yourself of your skills and your experience and your knowledge definitely keep a wind jar I know yeah. quite a few people Ooh. who have a wind yeah. jar write write it down a little bit paper put it in a jar and then the days when you're feeling a bit crappy about it all open up your wind jar and read the nice things that people have said about you or you know nice things that you've done yeah that's quite a cool thing to do yeah yeah I think we I think we've covered imposter syndrome there I think we have <laughs> we have, yeah. Oh, so, I'm not sure, Denise. I'm not sure. Was... I'm not sure if we have. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know if we did a good enough job on that yeah. one there. No, no. So the other thing that Rebecca asked, there was a second part to her question. Um, she said, um, I'm interested in attracting more indie authors to my business. I get a fair bit of interest through Readsy, but would ideally like to channel more interest independently via my website. I specialise in crime, suspense and thriller and would love to work on these titles full time if I could. Well, I know somebody who works full time on that sort of stuff. 
wonder what she would have to say about it. (laughs) So, um, Rebecca, if you've been listening to um, some of the answers to the other questions, I think you'll probably know what I'm going to say. But um, my my strategy for um, most of my, not every single piece of work I do is in those, in in that genre broadly, but most of my work, probably about 90% of it is crime, suspense, mystery and thriller. And um, content marketing is my strategy because I, 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 and and the, the the idea behind that, as we said before, but we'll say it again because it's really important that if you're going to go down this route, you understand this. Solve potential clients' problems with amazing content and resource libraries. Um, you've made a great start with your blog, but it seemed to me when I had a little nose at it, because I did, <laughs> to be <laughs> primarily book reviews in the genre, which is lovely. Um, but Instead, if you, or in addition to, if you focus on solving crime writers' problems, not just crime writers, actually, crime writers have got the same problems as other genre writers. So um, more generally, fiction writers' problems with comprehensive content that really digs down into the nitty gritty. Um, And then you you take that stuff and you can repurpose it into videos and booklets. Um, So think about, say, 1500 word articles on micro topics that people might search for so so i've done things for for crime authors on subgenres i've looked at um specifically how to use free and direct speech within that genre and what that really meant was that i was just um I was discussing how free and direct speech works in in fiction writing, but I was using examples from from um, uh, crime and thriller um, novels. But uh, you know, it's it's still read by by other people as well, so it's got a broader appeal. Um, But that's my approach. It is a lot of hard work, and the strategy requires, as Denise mentioned earlier, with another question, it requires commitment and consistency. Too many people start blogs but then lose their mojo, and the whole thing fizzles out. but it honestly, it does work if you're prepared to stick at it and it lasts for, uh, you, you know, you spend all this time making one great article, but you can you can share it again and again and again. It works for you forever. Mm-hmm. The other thing I want you to think about is your branding. So when people visit your website, which is the main space online that you control, does it speak to your core audience? Is the messaging on point? Is the colorway, the feel of it, the kind of the tone of voice you use, is that going to be um, something that's going to appeal to your um, target authors. When I went through my own branding um, process, I thought very carefully about what my ideal client, my angel client looked like. And I worked out um, what gender they might be, um, how old they probably were, um, what their, their backstory might be, and I, I and I and what kind of books they're writing. And so I really kind of, it, it, it means that my brand might appeal broad to, to people who don't exactly match that avatar. But essentially, um, that ideal client is a, a crime or thriller writer, and um, he happens to be a man, and he happens to be probably around um, his late 40s to mid 60s. You know, there's a whole story behind him, and and I always try and make sure that everything I do on my site speaks to this this, this sort of non-existent person, but he he lives in my head, and and that means that that I can keep my content on point. What an answer! That's fantastic. That's just me on rambling again. That, no, that's you on your, you know, you're in your groove there. You see, I was listening to you there and I was like, 
I kind of forgot that I was hosting this with you. I was just listening to you like a like one of our listeners, and it's like, oh. yeah, you've summed that up really rather well there, Louise. I oh, think. Thank yes. you, my darling. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah. <laughs> Shall we move on then? Yeah. Okay. So our next question is from Vanessa in the UAE, and Vanessa says, I run a freelance proofreading business for clients from around the world. I'm having decent success winning small projects on LinkedIn, but I'm finding it harder to get my foot in the door with the big publishers. I've got an ELT background, um, that's English language teaching. So I would love to do more work in that field. Also, any recommendations you have for finding thesis or dissertation work would be great. So I'll kick off. Um, I've just got a few points to make, but I think Denise will be um, a star at this question. Um, <laughs> no, but I, I guess I want to throw a question back at you, Vanessa. How many publishers have you contacted? Because I always think that one or two isn't enough. Five or ten isn't enough. More important to go for lots. Um, it, and and. I don't know whether how you've gone about going, getting in touch with your publishers, but as we talked about in part one of the Q&A, um, it's best to go direct to publishers rather than hoping they'll find you on other spaces like, like LinkedIn. But you could also target packages and PM agencies too, because um, a lot of times some of those companies will have work available in those fields, even though they cover broader fields. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, but Denise, you, why don't you talk about this because you know this field really well. Yeah, the, um, ELT is where I do almost all of my publisher work. Um, so the the thing, the other thing I'd ask is, are you targeting the right publishers, um, those whose lists match your specialism? Um, there are lots and lots of ELT publishers out there globally. Um, I, I think it's easy to think of the sort of the big ones, the big names in um, language teaching publishing, but. Actually, there's a whole lot of stuff going on out there, especially digitally as well um, with language teaching. And especially now um, with COVID-19, a lot of publishers are pivoting to digital and online um, materials. So there's there's work out there for all that sort of thing. Um, do you, do, can I just ask you, Denise, yeah. do you go to do you target them direct? Is that how you or, or are you getting word of mouth work as well? I'm, I'm getting I'm at the stage where I get word of mouth mainly now but it might be sometimes that I you know I, I might meet a, a new publisher at a conference or something which is something else that I'll come on to um so I go to I go to conferences in that area um and there are often networking opportunities with the publishers there who are looking to recruit freelancers so um you know it's not just about um contacting them directly by email but now um now I've been in this this particular field for a while I'm on quite a lot of different publishers databases and I also get word of mouth referrals as well so um but there is a good if you've got an ELT background there's certainly um there's a lot of work available in in that field for you um I think the thing to bear in mind is that publishers can be slow to pick up new freelancers if they've got an established pool so okay. I know that certainly early on when I was approaching a lot of publishers, some of them simply wrote back and said, we're not recruiting to our, um, our free freelance database at the moment, you know, contact us again in six months or whatever. Some of them, um, well, all of them at that stage, because I was an unknown quantity, they were they all asked me to do te tests, fairly, fairly short tests. Um, but quite often I would do a test and they would say, right, you're on our database. 
then I might not hear anything from them for a long time. So you do have to be a little bit patient. Yes. Uh-huh. I mean, I think the, I, I think one in particular, I think it was 18 months at least before I actually got a job offer from them. And then after that, I was a regular. So if you do a test and they tell you that you're on their database, don't be afraid to update them periodically with your availability. I mean, don't harass them, but maybe <laughs> especially you don't. They do not want emails every week from you saying still don't, here, still available. Don't stand outside their offices with a placard saying "Give me work." <laughs> yeah, editor for hire, help. Yeah. Um, no, but I, I think especially around holiday times in the run-up to holiday periods where their regulars might be maybe not available to them, it's always worth saying. You know, just dropping them an email saying that, you know, you've got availability if you have, obviously, um, you know, over the summer holidays or round about Christmas, where often there's a mad rush to get work done, weirdly. So um, do so do the test if asked. Highlight your availability, how flexible you are. Um, particularly, I, I always said I would be available for short notice and quick turnaround work because often they just, somebody else drops out and, you know, they, they need somebody quickly. And that's often a way of just getting your foot in the door. They'll try you out with something short, quick um, and relatively straightforward. Um, you say you've got an ELT background. You don't say what it is, um, but... If you have teaching experience, absolutely emphasise that classroom experience, um, whether you've been involved in materials creation, um, to show that you understand the, the subject. And also if you have perhaps specific exams knowledge, such as IELTS or TOEFL, um, again, targeting publishers who are publishing for those tests, whether that's course books or practice papers or whatever, that can, um, of course, they're going to want to draw on your experience, your knowledge. Um, and it might Denise, be that they... Can I just ask you, um, yeah. why don't you spell out those acronyms you mentioned? Because I was a bit surprised when you, you, you yeah. said them how you did. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and I was like... You're assuming, you're assuming that I can remember what they stand for. Um, no, IELTS. just the letters. Just yeah, the letters. IELTS. You... It's I-E-L-T-S. It's International English Language something, teaching, teaching something. But it's an IELTS exam. It's the exam that if you're not a native, if you if English is not your first language, you'll need an IELTS score to get into a university in the UK, particularly, or in some of the other English speaking countries to show that you've achieved a specific level of English proficiency. Mm -hmm. Okay, does that help? Thank yeah, <laughs> so yeah, having exam knowledge is a good thing as well. Um, the other thing I would say is um, I would recommend joining um, ELT Publishing Professionals. Um, that's an online directory. It brings together publishers and freelancers in the ELT sector and you can um, there's an annual fee for it. It's it's very reasonable. You create a portfolio and publishers and packengers and other organisations can search that through the portfolios and also advertise their own vacancies for specific jobs. And ELT publishing professionals also have an away day in Oxford in January each year. And they usually have a meetup at IATEFL conference as well, which is the International Association of Teachers of English as a Foreign Language. And that happens every March, April in the UK. So, um, Oh, you're a gold mine. Am I? Wow. Yeah, you are. Gold mine of information. So really? that is, but there's there's a there's a lot of work um um for people who have a background in ELT definitely, um if that's an area that you're interested in. So yeah, 
feel free to ask me more questions if you want. <laughs> I can mm. talk about that. But yeah. Um, you also asked about theses and dissertations. Um, I I haven't done this work for a long time, so I, again, I'm going to sort of head down the content um, creation route here. Um, you know, helping helping people find you um, by offering them great content that solves their problems. Is that the kind of stuff that's on your website? Does your website feel like a great resource hub for students? LinkedIn's great, but it's someone else's land, not yours. Um, the other thing is some universities um, in the UK, at least, um, allow freelancers to go onto their books. Um, so I know that um, Colchester University, for example, I think does this, although you have to live locally. For some yes, weird, weird that's reason. right. You have to be local to them. Yeah, I remember that. So that's something else to think about. But um, I'm not going to say anything else um on that because I'm I haven't actually actively gone out to get that kind of work for a long time. But certainly um, in 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 my earlier days, um, that was kind of the I I did I did ring around a few universities to mm. to find out um. But I think there's been discussions about this. Where where were you based again? Uh, the UAE. If you if if you're not a member of the CIEP and you fancy joining us, and, and the CIEP is an international, um, although although the office is located in 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 the UK and many of the members are are, are from um the United Kingdom, we do have international internationally located members, and there's been lots and lots of discussions on the forums um about uh getting this kind of um getting yeah. work from students um there's an absolute uh, wealth of knowledge there so that might be something else you can consider as well mm -hmm. and and the CIEP also offers um an online course for working on student theses and dissertations as well what well, so I think isn't there a guide as well there's a guide yes as well there's both yeah great. yeah yeah um so we've got uh, another question now from Tanya in Canada, who we talked, um, well, we answered a question for her in episode one. Um, and she says, uh, I'm an ELT specialist whose client base is rather varied. I want to specialise. The problem is I have a huge network and I'm the editor of a key publication in the field. How can I promote myself ethically to this market as a supplier of editing services? I don't want to say I published your paper and now it's your turn to help me <laughs> or worse. I will consider publishing your paper, but first give me a journal article to edit. <laughs> so um, my view on this is that there is a perfectly ethical approach and I'm going to really bore everybody again um, because we're back <laughs> to a content strategy. And so with this, you don't ask for anything. Um, instead, you give stuff away. Amazing content. You give it to your network via social media sharing so that you're top of mind. The first people that that network thinks of when it comes to securing ELT editing services. Yeah, yeah, that's how we both do it for our non-publisher clients. And it would absolutely work for you too. And we'll say it again, it does require commitment, but the rewards are huge. And you've already got an audience primed there waiting yeah. for you to give them that lovely knowledge. And not many editors are in that position, which in theory means you can reap the rewards more quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, our next question is from Emma in the US and she says, I've worked mostly in educational publishing for the past 23 years. After listening to your episode on technical writing and editing, I think I'd enjoy that kind of work. What kind of training would I need to expand my business? Um, so I recommend getting copywriting expert expertise and training. If you're not connected with John Asperian on LinkedIn, 
go and find him. Mm-hmm. He's a technical editor and is a recent guest on our podcast. He talks a little about, a bit about technical writing and editing um, there and mentions some resources. Um, so, yeah, visit his website or um, his LinkedIn profile. Yeah, and particularly on his website, his blog has a lot of information about this. Um, in particular, read his posts on how do I get freelance copywriting work, uh, copywriting for B2B case studies, uh, copywriting prices 2020, copywriting briefs, and can social media help you get copywriting work? So, um, and there's also one on how much does technical writing cost? Yeah. So I think that will give you a lot of information around that area and maybe help you think of a direction into that. Yeah. And, and do listen to that podcast episode as well, because yeah. um, Emma, because um, he, you really get a sense as well about how he went about making himself visible um, mm-hmm. to to his target audience of, of people who want technical writing skills. And maybe you won't be shocked to hear, but he embraces a content strategy too. <laughs> so just in case anybody's still awake listening to this. Um, uh, and, and John's actually got a book um, out called Content DNA. Um, yeah. Um, so, yeah, maybe take a look at that too. Yeah. Okay. So now we're going to head back to the US um, for a question from Penny. Penny says, I'm just getting started in the copy editing field. How on earth does a person come up with a name for their copy editing business when they do not yet know what their niche will be and they don't want to use their own name? So um, place names can be useful. Our colleague Helen Stevens has a business called Salter Editorial Services and Salter is the name of the village in Yorkshire, which she lives in. And um, so that's a, a really um, nice little um idea that you can go for because and that can be really useful in terms of SEO when clients want to work with somebody locally because they'll use keywords like Salter and editing in their, yeah. their search and so mm-hmm. you know if, you, if, if you're someone um, locally who wants to work with um, an editor and <laughs> <laughs> Helen probably ranks quite highly so I would think so yeah mm-hmm. so and 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 also I think that's a real there's a real sort of sense of the personal in that um, yeah you know, it's 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 and, and it doesn't matter if Helen decided to, to change her own name or, or you know, it wouldn't it wouldn't affect that. Mm-hmm. Um, and our friend Carrie O'Grady's business is is she's called the Hackney Fiction Doctor. And maybe you won't be surprised to know that she lives in Hackney in East London. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. Then they're good suggestions. Um, another option is to think of a theme or a concept that means something personally to you in general. We know of editors who include terms such as clarity, precision, transformation, night owl in their business names. Um, Another great example is Alex Capitan's business, The Radical Copy Editor. Such a good one. It's a great one, isn't it? Such a good example. Because diversity and inclusion is something they believe in beyond the world of words so it really sums up their their ethos really nicely yeah, yeah. Um, another option is to think about playing on words so Kathy Swales our colleague in New Zealand has a business called right or wrong but the right is spelt w-r-i-t-e mm-hmm. and nick jones's business is called foolproof as opposed to foolproof yeah see they both sound the same when i see them and i, <laughs> so, yeah. I, I really had to sort of over pronounce there but maybe you should spell them out <laughs> yeah foolproof nick's business is f-u-l-l proof and um as opposed to the term fool i guess an idiot proof. yes 
Okay, thank you for that. <laughs> I think the key the key thing here is to ensure that someone isn't already using the same name because you want to stand out and not create confusion. So do spend a bit of time researching it. Yeah. Yep. Um, our next question is from Morgan in Uganda. Um, and Morgan says, how do you begin a proofreading business on a tight budget? Um, Oh, this is quite a it feel this is a question that we could probably do an entire workshop on um so but we'll try and give you some hints morgan um so don't buy a mac <laughs> get a pc to start with because <laughs> it'll save you um um it will save you money you'll get more for your more more bang for your buck um and uh, you will need a, a a computer um go for the best deal you can get for your budget that gives you the most ram and the most up-to-date processors um in fact one of our colleagues um in the cip who's um a technical wizard richard uh, um was saying today uh, a similar question came up about the tech side of things um from someone who's on a budget and he suggested that at the moment in 2020 um you don't really need anything with more than an i5 processor um um but and also um don't necessarily worry about things like solid state drives because apparently if space is an issue you can get more for your money if you just go for hard drives um as for your software you will need word because that's industry standard and i know there are free options out there and other sorts of open source software but i i think you you, you would be best off getting yourself a, a copy of, of word so that's that's how to do tech on a budget um Denise, do you want to? Yeah, yeah. Do you know? Can you hear it? It's bloody started again. <laughs> can you the hear parents, it? I thought that was you fiddling around. The no. parents are out again. They're upstairs. Yeah. And also, my dishwasher's decided to be really noisy. Well, I can't hear kitchen. that. Get can't on. hear that. Well, that's a relief. Okay, back to the question. <laughs> so um you might oh, also Morgan. I know Morgan I'm so sorry we interrupted your question with my domestic issues here I'm really <laughs> sorry um so you might also need a pdf editor now Acrobat DC is a good free option um which does everything that you need for proofreading where all you're required to do is mark up your text but if you want paid for software that mimics Adobe's full suite because you're going to actually be editing PDFs. Um, PDF Exchange Editor uh, mimics Adobe, but is like a tenth of the price. Um, but we mentioned in part one, there can be compatibility issues with InDesign. So check with your clients how they're going to be using their PDFs. Um, the biggest investment I think a new proofreader needs to make aside from training isn't money, um, but it's time. And that's time yeah. to develop you know, their marketing strategy and promote their business regularly and consistently because the work isn't going to come to you. You really need to create the opportunities for people to find you. You know, it's, you can't just sit back and hope it's going to happen. And Morgan, think about your, as part of your marketing strategy, think about your brand strategy. You know, what kind of message I talked about this a little bit before with um, regards to um, the, the crime and thriller genre but it, it applies to anything um denise and i both have have spent time working on our brand identities and thinking about our brand values and what we stand for and who we are and who and what kind of the way we message so that so that we talk to, to people and that stuff that stuff isn't necessarily expensive to learn but it requires your time and it requires you thinking about it um in terms of um 
sort of how you make yourself uh you know how you create your online shop front um you need a website you need to spend a fortune on this you could use one of the attractive templates that the likes of wordpress weebly and wix offer that's what the route denise and i have gone down i have a weebly denise mm -hmm. has weebly and is working on her wordpress website but oh, we yes. won't talk about that no because... we don't talk about the website <laughs> Um, you will have obviously an annual cost of, of, of a custom domain name, um, so that will need to be budgeted for too. But if you if you couldn't afford that at first, then then just maybe go with you know one of the freebies you can get. And but but do as soon as you can afford to get a custom domain name, do that too. Yeah, and we should talk more about professional training. Um, it it may seem expensive, but honestly compared to other professions it actually isn't it will make you fit for purpose and show you where your strengths and weaknesses are so that you feel confident about doing a job to industry standards yeah it really is an investment isn't it, mm. it it's difficult it's easy to see it as a cost sometimes but yeah um uh, it is an investment and if 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 the budget is tight that you look at the courses that you're interested in you you and you, they feel um inaccessible to you at the moment then um, if you can think about saving up for them so that maybe you don't do the course this year, um, you do you do it next year, um, yeah. you build towards it. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, I think oh, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll let I'll let you because you, you know a little bit more about this um, than me, Denise. But um, so what I'll say for now is um, instead of in terms of the other kit you need, instead of investing in new dictionaries and style manuals, um, another budget option is to see if you can pick up secondhand ones via forums and, and the editing network. So, um, you know, ask around in the editing forums, explain that you're you're working with a budget and because people often have like I know that I don't have a copy of Chicago Manual of Style, a physical copy. But if, uh, if I if I did, I'd be looking to give it away to someone because um, you know, I've got the online version now. So there are often people with with, uh, with books that are still perfectly usable sitting on their desk and they'd be more than happy to, to send them to you. Um, Definitely. And take advantage of free trials so you can assess the value of any software before you buy it or um, commit to it. So Perfecta is a good example. It's a really, really popular um, editing tool, um, but it offers a free trial so you can try before you buy. And I know that CMOS um, has a free assessment period for um, for for itch, for the Chicago Manual style and <laughs> lots of other, lots of style guides offer free free things um, yeah, temporarily. Yeah. So you know, I think the thing is just to do your research about what freebies are available as a starting point. Um, you know, there's a lot of free or cost-effective training available if you spend some time digging into Google. Not all of it will be enough to make you ready for professional practice but it's a good starting point um, and the CIEP on their website has a taster proofreading test that you can do for free to assess where your strengths and weaknesses are yeah and, and Morgan also said um, I spent over 24 years in secondary and tertiary education recently uh, I've been working as an admin manager for a civil electrical and IT company which areas can I specialize in as a proofreader and editor so um, I think obviously you build on your current expertise and uh, knowledge yeah. base, definitely. Um, and I would start by researching uh, which publishers specialise in educational IT and technical books and journals. Using career specialisms is a good way to think about targeting because 
you know the language of these sectors and are much more likely to spot errors than a non-specialist. Yep. And publishers, packages and project management agent agencies um, who, who are working um, in those fields, they already have their hands raised. They expect to hear from freelance editors and proofreaders and they understand the value of your services. So don't be afraid to contact them once your training is complete. Absolutely, yeah. So let's move to Wales now for uh, a question from Wales. Elaine. Uganda, we're just this. so international, aren't we? <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> so Elaine in Wales asks us, um, she says, I'm new to the proofreading world and would love to find out more. I'm looking at completing an online proofreading course and would love to be able to picture an effective marketing strategy. This is important to me, as most people I speak to see this is a very difficult industry to get into. And of course, work is not always guaranteed. Organisation tips around a young baby would also be very helpful. Louise. OK, so online training providers in the UK include the Publishing Training Centre and the Chartered Institute of Editing and Proofreading, the CIEP, which are the two that Denise and I are both most familiar with. Yeah, yeah. And as they're, for marketing, I'm not what? saying we're on. Uh, sorry, I was just going to say that they're not the only two. I, I know other editors who speak very highly of other training organisations, but Denise and I are just wary of recommending those we haven't worked with. We haven't um, had we, personal we can, experience of yeah, them, yeah. We can say hand yeah. on heart that, that we're comfortable recommending the PTC and the CIEP because we, we know what we're getting into, but they're not the only ones. Exactly, yeah. As for marketing, how about trying Louise's book, Marketing Your Editing and Proofreading Business? because it covers all the bases and if you want to dig deeper into particular aspects she's also got a course on how to brand yourself use social media and do content marketing Dismisses. yeah i think that's more than enough harmby promotion though <laughs> <laughs> so uh the ciep um, has a ton of resources as well and it's got really vibrant forums where you can talk to others and get lots of advice about starting out yeah and it's a great question that you asked, Elaine, because our take on this is that you must do something to make yourself visible, because exactly as you say, there's a lot of competition and it's global. Now, what strategy works best for you will depend to an extent on the kinds of clients you want to work for. So publishers are great to start with, because as I said to Morgan a few minutes ago, they have their hands raised. Mm. Um, most use freelance staff for copy editing and proofreading. So emailing or writing to them is a really good first port of call. Um, but Denise mentioned earlier about how some specialisms, conference networking can be really effective. And if you want to uh, work with um, indie authors, then you then you do need to think about your brand strategy and your content strategy. Yes. Just to mention content, content marketing one more time. Do you think we've mentioned it enough yet? <laughs> I'm sure we can get it in a little bit more. But you know. So the other thing you asked about was organising yourself around young children. And we know this comes with its own challenges. Um our kids are older now, but um, we've been there um, and we have lots of colleagues who are still very much in the throes of this. So here are some tips that we would suggest. Um, you need to set clear boundaries from the outset that suit your home life. So you might have to move away from the traditional thought of, you know, working somehow in between nine and five. And it might be that you need to be up doing some work earlier in the morning or even later in the evening when the kids are in bed and a lot of that will depend on your own personal cycle through a day do you are you a night owl or are you a morning person louise and i are most definitely night owls but lots of our too. 
just as well, eh? Um, but lots of our colleagues are happily up before their kids in the morning to get a couple of hours work done. So figure out what it is that works best for you and what time you can clearly mark off that says to everybody else in your household, this is when I'm working. The other really important thing is not to overbook. Um, be really be realistic about how much you can achieve, how many hours you actually have available to you for, for your editing work. And then pace yourself so that projects can be spaced out over longer time periods. I certainly was guilty when, when I first started um, and people were asking me how long it would take me to do a job to committing to get things back to them as quickly as possible because I thought if I told them I needed three weeks to do something they, they mm. would they would go yeah. somewhere else you know yeah. so um you know having the confidence to know how long it will take you um and how long it will take you given your own circumstances and that's where it's not helpful to compare yourself with other editors because yes. you know what what your um schedule is maybe no resemblance to theirs at all um so you just have to work out what fits you and your household best whether you have a partner at home or not and how much they can contribute towards childcare when you're all in the house together so um that's about sort of scheduling scheduling yourself and the other thing is invest in learning and how to use efficiency tools to help you work more productively so that the time you do have you're working really smartly um so whether that's macros or learning to use word templates and styles or you know other software like you know like perfected that we've mentioned before every little thing that can shave a little bit of time off your editing time is going to make you more productive and make your effective early rate better as well good paul um another um and this kind of harks back to what denise was saying a minute ago but um you know don't worry about it's not a bad thing necessarily to work in short bursts or what one of our colleagues, Cathy O'Moore-Cloth calls sprints. Um, mm -hmm. Because you can get, sometimes when, when the pressure's on, you can actually get a lot done. If you, if you do half an hour here, an hour there, half an hour here, half an hour there. And, and because you don't have time to procrastinate, you just have to get on with it. So if you find that works better for you because of your home situation, then that's fine. Um, mm -hmm. Another thing you can do um, is think about clearing um, a, a defined working space so that you can put the baby down to sleep and, 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 get going with your work straight away, even if you've only got 30 minutes or an hour or whatever. So sort of ready to go environment. Um, you, you might not have space for that. And in which case, fair enough. Um, but if you do have the space, um, it might really help you to um, work more efficiently with, with when you're working in those sprints. And then also think about um, creating a realistic plan ahead of time about what your working week might look like based on your baby's current needs, but also their future needs because th things change quickly as you already know yeah. <laughs> oh I'm, I'm 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 weeping for you just thinking about the pressure you're under at the moment <laughs> i had a, a new puppy at christmas and that that was kind of like i thought this is what it was like having a baby only it's got more legs and um <laughs> and <laughs> doesn't wear nappies either doesn't wear nappies but it's only a dog no it's not it, it is anyway so it was easier than a baby it was much easier well yeah. done you good well done <laughs> And the, so the final thing I'd want to suggest as well is 
try and be disciplined about your online networking time so that you avoid getting sucked into that rabbit hole of, sort of Facebook chats with other editors um, or, you know, going down that Twitter meme rabbit hole as well so you can really stay focused on your training materials or work I mean so shut down those browsers just don't have the temptation there but I think most of all I think the bottom line here and I think Louise and I would both say this is just be willing to be flexible and be kind to yourself um, and just accept this is just not the easiest of times for you to be setting up a proofreading business so you know don't expect too much of yourself. You've got a lot on your plate as it is already. But you know, best of luck with it anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, credit to you for, for actually even thinking about planning ahead like this. The fact yeah. that you've even sort of like asked this question shows that your head's already in a really good space. Um, I just want to throw one more little thing in. I used to use my baby's nap times to study. Not intensively. You know, again, it was short bursts, but... And I also put in a few weekends and evenings in those early days because my partner could take over. Denise talked about this early. Um, mm. But getting him on board about starting my new business and what that would entail was essential so that we could juggle. So that it felt like it was it was something that it was my new business, but it was something that we were doing as a family. Yeah, that's really it's getting buy in from everybody in the house, yeah. isn't it? Really? Yeah. yeah. Except for the yeah. baby. The baby, the baby doesn't care. Baby's got its own agenda, really, yeah. doesn't it? <laughs> Okay then, so we're okay. we're getting through them here, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, yes. So, um, Megan in the US um, asks, would love to hear your thoughts on scaling your business while still remaining part time, full time mum here. She says. Right. Okay then. So, the the bottom line with editing is that it's a one to one transaction of time for money. So that you only have so much time in the day. And you can only earn so much money for that time. And eventually you're going to run out of time. So you're going to hit a ceiling with that ultimately. So when you think about scaling your business, um, most people, when you think about scaling a business, imagine it getting bigger, you know, and for, for most businesses that would involve, you know, taking on more employees or, you know, opening another restaurant or, you know, whatever. But scaling's not just about getting bigger. It's about diversifying and widening your net um, so instead of one-to-one -one transactions which has which have to be finite when they're time-based think about how you could transition some of your time into one-to-many services so that your 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 time is spread to lots of recipients of that time. So, for example, providing training um, or getting a passive income from books. Um, the other thing you can think about if you're still in that one-to-one -one transaction phase is charging more so that your time itself is more valuable. So you mm -hmm. might have to ask yourself, well, how can I justify that? Um, have you got more experience? Have you gained specialist knowledge? Have you taken specialist training? Are, could you target different clients that are more willing and able to pay higher fees? Um, if you provide scarce or in-demand skills, you can charge more for them. Um, repositioning yourself as a consultant so that you're providing editorial consultancy word, work. Um, that's a magical word, consultancy. All of a sudden, it conveys a different status to you yep. and people are willing to pay for it. 
Yeah, exactly. And um, and although there's work to put in initially, um, you you scale your business because the income is recurring, especially mm. with um um passive income anyway. Yeah. Um, passive income streams after the initial creation is done, there's no further input. So what kind of information might your core clients want? So in addition to the things that Denise talked about, suggestions about books, guides courses, webinars, manuals, other forms of training. Consider also custom services that you can offer that 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 don't take up so much time, but that are valuable and so come at that highly hour, hourly rate, but don't appear so costly to the client. So just some examples. Um, maybe you could offer back cover blurb writing or editing. Maybe you could offer mini edits, five to ten thousand word um, edits for, for as, as sort of agent teasers. That's something that I developed. Um, then because I can fit them in around the bigger jobs. Um, maybe you could offer fast turnaround services that are priced at a premium. Um, and Denise talked about this. You could offer maybe 30 minute or one hour coaching or, or consultancy. Yeah, definitely. There's it's it's an opportunity to get creative with your services and yeah. with your skills, definitely. Yeah. Um, the other thing to think about is if you have an abundance of work offers, a referral fee system might be appropriate. And that can work with colleagues who struggle to get leads but are but are very well qualified. You do the marketing work that they don't want to do. Um yeah. so think about also whether there's potential for retainer clients in your sector so you provide services for clients who need your help regularly and they pay you a fixed monthly fee regardless of how much work comes in though you do need to be careful with how you price it and how you cap it as well yeah, yeah. um next question is from sarah in the uk sarah says i completed the ptc basic proofreading course last spring and have since been able to leave my previous job as a full-time in-house website editor how would you go about um, appropriate research to find out how much work might be available for any prospective specialism you're thinking of targeting and what the relevant clients might need so um it depends on who your clients are and what you're planning on specializing in um Start with the specialisms you know and apply a more generalised marketing strategy um, so that, that that research is targeted. So who are your ideal clients? Where are they? What are their problems? How can you solve them? Oh, dear, this is sounding a bit like content marketing again. <laughs> but, there we um, are, yeah. <laughs> but there's always demand for clients who want medical, legal, fiction, business, educational, social science and scientific specialisms. So um, in, a, in a sense that the, the kind of research has been done for you. Um, some of them um, might want specific types of content edited, which could require additional skills that you have as a former website editor. Um, with publishers, you can you can tell um, pretty much by their divisions and their publications what 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 kind of stuff. So that kind of research is really really easy to do. Then it's a case of just getting in touch and asking. Um, not just one or two, but maybe <laughs> seventy of them. Expect lots of thanks from publishers and. Um, some thanks rather but lots of no thanks and or, or lots of not at the moments but don't give up on it yeah definitely not you have to be persistent there yeah so project management agencies are overt about the specialisms they offer so for example new gen do academic scholarly and reference work um, and you can actually listen to an episode of the this podcast where we spoke to one of their in-house editors jenny about this and what she's looking for in terms of editors um, with fiction, I think there's demand for any genre, really. The key okay. is to get in front of indie authors, unless it's publishers that you want to work for. So, you know, meet those indie authors where they hang out, whether that's 
Twitter chats or writing groups or whatever. Um, well, content I, marketing. Content marketing. Yes. Funny about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, advertising and communication agencies. That can be an in- interesting market to target if you want to use your former career experience. But it's really a case of digging in and, and just talking to them. Yeah. There's no quick way to do research outside the publishing industry. Um, I think it's it is about um, a consistent and focused marketing strategy that you can learn from over time. Because, um, and and testing is a useful mindset. Um, because what works for you might might not work for me. Um, it depends on your messaging and your brand and who you're who you're talking to. So you might decide to test a, an um, advertising in a particular directory or a magazine or doing a direct mail campaign to. Um, um, advertising and comms agencies and assessing how it does over three months or maybe you test Facebook ads or LinkedIn ads. It's it's always a process of learning because there's rarely a straight answer. What, what works for one person might work very differently for another. Yeah, it's a really good point that. Yeah, a couple, couple more ideas for you. Um, talk to other editors, um, be part of a community and, and listen to what they're saying about are, you know, are, are they talking about how busy they are in their field or are they talking about how work's dried up where they, in the sort of sector that they work in? Um, you know, if you're part of a community, pay attention to what other editors are talking about. Um, but whatever you do, don't go in and ask them for client details or overflow work. I mean, that's oh. a sure way of um, getting people's backs up, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, because it basically says to them, you do all the hard work, all the research. Yeah. I'm sure you wouldn't. I mean, uh, you know. No, um, we're not suggesting that for a yeah. minute, but it happens surprisingly oh. often, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. We kind of threw that, that don't do not do it in because yeah. just in case there are other people listening who might be thinking that would might be a good idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because people often think that they're doing editors a favour by offering to do overflow work, but really that is not how it works. Yeah. That's not how it works. Um, so the other idea I would suggest is Google, use Google to search as though you were looking for an editor in a particular field and find what comes up. Are there a lot of editors offering services? Does that suggest that there's a lot of work available for it? For example, if you if you were looking for thesis and dissertation work and you Googled as a student, you'd quickly find that student work is plentiful but it can be low paid. So that's the other thing you have to be careful just because there's a lot of work out there doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be the best for you. Yeah. And finally, mm-hmm. Sarah, if you're thinking about um, work as a website editor, um, again, back to content marketing, but you can attract that massive range of customers who might be interested. Most businesses have websites, so the demand is there. You don't have to do any research. You know it. It's not a case of the research to establish demand, but about accessing that market, being discoverable. And um, I just want to point you to one of our colleagues' websites, um, Michelle Bourbonnier. Um, she 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 um, uh, specialises in, in website editing and content marketing. She and I had a conversation about this, actually, and she told me that content marketing had been key for her when she set up her, her website editing business. So maybe go and take a look at her website. She's called Edited by Michelle, and you can see kind of like how she positions herself. Can you still hear all this creaking going on upstairs? I can. I can. <gasps> like, I, I'm just sort of blanking it out until he mentioned it. But Sorry. Our, I'm sure our listeners are enjoying it. It just sounds like you're doing a little bit of woodwork at the same time. <laughs> well, now you've given away my big secret because it's not uh, a creaky floorboard. I'm actually building a life-size wooden sculpture <laughs> of you. <laughs> oh, 
can't wait to see that. So while while I'm I'm just thinking about that, why don't um you say the last question? Because we're okay. at the end. We're at the very end, yes. So the final question is from Morgan in Uganda again. Um, so he asks, my question is on marketing yourself. How do I market my website and get the right fit clients? Oh, I, I almost don't say it. <laughs> I will. Content marketing is, we both think, the best way of making your website visible in the search engines, Morgan. The key is making it about the client, not about you. So think about focusing on how you solve clients' problems with free content that demonstrates your editorial skills, your editorial excellence, and helps questions clients with the questions they've asked. So booklets, videos, audio content, blog posts, checklists, and the great stuff it, thing about this stuff is that you can create that for free. We answered a question from you earlier about budget. And the great thing about content marketing, as Denise said earlier too, is that it is very, very cheap to do. It's just, it's costly in terms of its time. So mm -hmm. if you're a, a proofreader who's looking to, to, to get visible on a budget, but you are prepared to invest and commit to, to that strategy, um, that's a really good route to go down to get your website visible and it, attract the ideal clients. It really is. Um, I mean, if you think of the, the budget you would need to have to place, whether it's Facebook ads or ads in traditional print directories or whatever, and you're limiting who's, who's seen that by the reach you have with what you can afford to pay. So, there's no limit to the reach that your content has if you create enough of it and strategically share it in the right way. So creating it regularly, adding it to your website so that when the search engines crawl through it, they can see that you're continually updating your website. That is what moves a website up Google pages is regular, fresh, useful and helpful content. And the Google algorithms do decide whether content is helpful or not. So it is worth taking the time to get your content right. Get the news about that content out via social media. Um, don't try and be everywhere at once. Pick a platform where your clients are and focus on that. It, it is a slow burn, but it pays rewards further down the line. Yeah. So that's it for this Q&A. Thank you so much for listening. Um, this has been a bit of a whopper. I'm going to let Denise decide whether to split it into two. Um, <laughs> but um, it, it's been a real pleasure doing this. Thank you to everybody for all your questions. Yeah, we great. really we really have enjoyed it. And, and we hope you have too. And we hope the information that we've given you is useful. Um, I think from this, you gather that Louise and I are both content marketing advocates. But Did you? What? Content what? Did <laughs> we mention it? Did what, we? What, what is it? <laughs> we should Google it. We should Google it and find Google out. It. Yeah. Anyway, we'll thank mm. you so much for listening to the editing podcast. You can rate, review, and subscribe to us via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever platform you prefer. Thanks for listening. You bye bye. bye.